Matthew chapter 1, in verse 18, we read, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the stores stirred the last-minute shoppers clutching custom-brewed pours. Wait, this is for tonight. Forget I just said that. No, this is something different. We're talking about Christmas. You know, the word Christmas appears nowhere in the Bible. But I want to remind you that the word Bible appears nowhere in the Bible. The word Bible simply means the book. So there was a time when the word Bible might properly be understood to belong to any book. The word Christmas has come down in our vocabulary from Christ's Mass, it was a phrase that was first used about 1038 AD. The Anglo-Saxons made reference to the feast as midwinter. In Latin, it was called nativitas. We get the word nativity from that. It means birth. In Old English, the word was iola. It's spelled G-E-O-L-A. The G is silent. You've probably heard of Yuletide carols. It's the same word, U-L, birth. Noel entered the English language via the French, Nael, which was borrowed from the Latin, Natilas, Dias, birthday. It's been argued that Christ masses of Romish origin and pagan and should therefore be jettisoned from our vocabulary. But the same critics are comfortable using the same pagan names to describe the days of the week or the months of the year. It's interesting to me, there are lots of pagan words in our vocabulary. But it was the great Samuel Johnson who wrote, The church does not superstitiously observe days merely as days, but as memorials of important facts. Christmas night be might be kept just as well as one day of the year as another day, but there should be a stated day for commemorating the birth of our Savior because there is a danger that what may be done on any day will be neglected. He could just as easily have said, it could be neglected every single day. And I think that that day has already begun. It's interesting that if you check the listings of 25 things to do leading up to Christmas, or 10 things to do to brighten your holiday cheer, none of those things have anything to do with Jesus with his birth and the reason for his birth. I grew up in a world maybe a little different from yours. I grew up in a world where I consciously remember loving Christmas before I loved Christ. 
Do you find that interesting? That I grew up in a world where Christmas was more important than Jesus. And it's interesting to me, the conspicuous lack of reference to Christ on his birthday. Thousands of people profess to be quite happy apart from Jesus. But if that's true, if they really are happy, if they really are content, then why did God send Jesus into the world? It has to be that their happiness is at best superficial and that there's this thin veneer of deceit that masks the truth that is inside of their heart because even as a child growing up, I so desperately wanted to be happy at Christmas time. And there was a momentary relief of guilt or shame when the presents arrived. It's interesting to me that the critics and the skeptics say whatever day marks the birth of Jesus, it certainly wasn't December 25th, and that's fair enough. You see, the New Testament writers were less concerned about the birth day than they were about the event that brought about the change in the planet earth. The Jewish reader wanted to know whether or not the Messiah had the right genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 verses 1 through 17. The Jewish person wanted to know, did the birth of the Messiah fulfill the requisite prophecies that are outlined in the book of Genesis and that continue in the book of Isaiah and march forward throughout the Psalms? And so we go to the realization by Joseph. Look what it says in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. It could easily be translated. The birth of Jesus happened this way. This is the way that it all happened. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately or secretly. So what were the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus? We have every reason to believe that Matthew knew Mary. Did you know that? He knew her. He could conduct an interview with her. He could go right to the source and get the information from the source. We know that earlier in chapter 1, verse 16, it said, And Jacob begat Joseph, note, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Matthew plainly states that Mary was Jesus' mother. And that Joseph was not, I repeat, not the biological father. The New Testament writer admits the mother of Jesus was betrothed to a man named Joseph. And that Joseph discovered that his wife was pregnant. Matthew's explanation reads, quote, She was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And we have every reason to believe that Joseph at this point did not believe that even for a minute. Just like some of you perhaps. You grew up in a world where you go, that's ridiculous. Women don't become pregnant unilaterally. That's not what the text says. It says that she conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. We have every reason to believe that Joseph would not, I repeat, would not have entered into the engagement had he questioned Mary's purity and propriety. And again, remember the New Testament's focus isn't on the date of his birth, but the fact of his birth. The mother of Jesus is named Mary. She's betrothed to Joseph. In order to understand the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus, we have to know a little bit more about Jewish wedding customs in the first century. 
In the Jewish culture, most marriages were arranged by the parents of the children. It, it isn't like now. On my radio program, people used to ask me, um, you know, where did Cain find his wife? And I said, eHarmony.com. He went online and found her. Can you imagine if the birth of Jesus took place in the modern circumstances where Joseph is going online and going, um, my name is Joseph. I'm a direct descendant of David. Um, I live in Nazareth. I'm a carpenter looking for a nice Jewish girl. Must be pure. In that culture and society, parents arranged the marriage. I'm, I'm thinking that maybe it'll make a comeback, especially when I think about my grandchildren and my granddaughters in particular. Wouldn't it be so much better if I get to choose who they marry? They're not too keen on that idea. But in that culture, the parents would arrange the marriage the families would agree to the union, a bride price would be agreed upon, and then the betrothal period was established. And the betrothal period was made publicly. A public announcement was made. And so when a couple were betrothed to one another, it was a legal contract. It was binding enforceable. It, could, it was way bigger than a modern engagement. If you get engaged in our culture and society, and if the guy or the gal decides to break up with you, you don't typically go to court. But in that particular culture and society, that's exactly what would happen. It, the engagement could only be off if somebody died or if there was a legal divorce. It was the time during this betrothal period that the groom would prepare a place for his bride, but it was also to be a time of personal purity. Sexual relations were forbidden until the actual marriage. And so during the betrothal period, Mary became pregnant. The explanation given in the text, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says, Joseph was a just man. Just means righteous. He was a person of integrity. He had no desire whatsoever to expose Mary to public disgrace and was willing to divorce her quietly. So what do we know about Joseph? Well, we know that he's a direct descendant of King David. We know that from chapter 1, verse 11, where it says that Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, and then there's a 14-generation genealogy leading up to David. And when you come to verse 11, it includes Jeconiah, the cursed king, after the time of Babylon. And, of course, the curse of Jeconiah is found in Jeremiah chapter 22. My friends that got questions right, first, the Lord likens the king to a signet ring on God's hand, a ring that God will pull off in, in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. Then God pronounces a curse, quote, Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah, unquote. Joseph was a direct descendant of Jeconiah and was cursed, that is, bore the curse, which means that he could not occupy the throne of his father David. So how do you get around this curse? Some have suggested that the curse only applied to Jeconiah's immediate offspring. Others cite this virgin birth of Mary because even though Mary also was a direct descendant of David, she was not a direct descendant of Jeconiah. We know that from the genealogies in the book of Luke, chapter 3, verse 31. Some suggested that God reversed the curse when God claimed that he would make Zerubbabel a signet ring on his hand, and Zerubbabel does in fact become the governor of Judea in Haggai chapter 2 verse 23 but he never occupies 
the throne of his father David. And so the far more likely solution to the problem of the curse is it's going to require a birth that is supernatural. But remember, you live in a culture and a society that doesn't believe in supernatural births. You live in a culture and a society that mocks and is likely to distance itself from the idea that there could be a supernatural birth. But don't be alarmed because look what it says in the revelation and the reassurance by the angel in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, who's thinking? Joseph. What is he thinking? Mary's pregnant. What else is he thinking? I'm not the father. What else is he thinking? I am going to have to get rid of her. Joseph wants to celebrate without Mary and without Jesus, pledged, pregnant. While he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The pregnancy of Mary produced a predicament in the heart of Joseph, in the mind of Joseph, so much so that it gave him bad dreams. And so it is for everyone. The pregnancy of Mary... The supernatural arrival produces a predicament for everyone because this pregnancy doesn't just have implications for Joseph, it has implications for every single person in every single generation. Joseph knew that the child wasn't his. The only explanation that made sense to him was that Mary had been unfaithful. And so you can imagine, you live in a world where so many people think, well, clearly, virgins don't have children. So whatever happened at Christmas time, it really can't be what the Bible recorded. It wasn't just the social stigma in small town Galilee. There were severe penalties for the law of sexual immorality, which included stoning in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. But in our culture and society, if a girl gets pregnant, oh well. Oh well. These things happen. It happens. Everyone can understand why Joseph would not want to go through with the marriage. And everyone also understands why. Why should we ruin a perfectly good celebration and a holiday? We don't really have to believe that Jesus came to the planet Earth supernaturally. But I want you to see that Joseph's distress is everyone's distress. We see Joseph's distress in verse 19, his dream in verse 20 and 21, and then the decision that, that has to come about in verses 24 and 25 because Joseph's dilemma was not the dilemma of the theological critic or the skeptic. It wasn't embroiled in a debate over the theological implications of a virgin birth. Joseph was wounded. He was hurt. Mary was pregnant. The child in her womb didn't belong to him. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Joseph did not believe Mary's pregnancy was supernatural. And so the Lord sent an angel in a dream to convince him that Mary's pregnancy was indeed supernatural. Once again, the critic or the skeptic might find a different interpretation to Joseph's dream. That Joseph was either naive or maybe the poor guy was so in love that he was willing to believe anything. 
in order to continue in a relationship with a cheating spouse like Ebenezer Scrooge in Dickens' classic tale when confronted with the ghost of Christmas past, did Joseph think, you may be an undigested bit of beef, a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. There's more gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. Whatever this dream is, couldn't possibly be an angel with a real message from the real God. But apparently this is a compelling dream. The angel calls Joseph the son of David. The reason why he calls Joseph a son of David, I think, is because of the reference to the very special role that was assigned to Joseph in God's plan for raising Israel's Messiah. The angel offers him comfort. Do not, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. And the explanation for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You're looking for a natural solution to a supernatural problem, the angel is going to offer, offer a supernatural solution to the supernatural problem that each and every person faces on the planet earth because you see sin is invisible and irreparable. It is internal and consequential. The last thing that people want to think about at Christmas time is that they're sinners and that they need a savior. But the supernatural message of the angel also contains the supernatural message. Shock, shame, misunderstanding. Is there going to be fallout? What if Joseph actually believes this message from the angel? What if he believes his dream? What if he completes the process? What if he goes forward in the marriage? What if the angel is right when he says that Mary hasn't sinned in this matter? You see, the Holy Spirit acts as God fulfilling God's plan. We're told the story in Luke chapter 1, verse 26, verses 38. Luke's gospel gives us Mary's perspective on what happened surrounding the birth of her child. Matthew gives Joseph's perspective concerning the birth of the child. When the angel in Luke's gospel tells Mary that she's chosen to be the mother of the promised Messiah, her response is not that of a naive girl growing up in a distant village full of fear and superstition. She wasn't an idiot because the angel said you're going to be with child and her response is how can this be she understood that babies don't typically come into the world except by the usual way and the birth of Jesus was a miracle of God that brought Jesus into the world absent sin absent a human nature in 2nd Corinthians 5, 2, it says he knew no sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he was sinless. Hebrews 4, 15, sinless. Mary willingly submits to God's plan, knowing that the inevitable shock and shame and misunderstanding is going to happen because she too is given an explanation by the angel that the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and the child that you conceive is going to be supernatural. But both Mary and Joseph are going to have to learn some valuable lessons. Just like we sometimes can learn valuable lessons from other people's lessons. The Lord will sometimes show us that there's other options that are available to us, particularly when Joseph is faced with an unplanned pregnancy. Joseph's immediate response is to ditch the woman and to ditch the child 
Joseph may have thought that he was doing the right thing. And I want you to think about that. When Joseph is contemplating what his options are, he is thinking in his own heart that the right thing to do, that the God-honoring thing to do is to break the engagement with Mary. But the Lord, through a supernatural revelation, is going to give Joseph another option. You see, so many people live in this world and they think that they have no other option than to go forward in unbelief, in criticism, in skepticism. The Bible can't possibly be true. The virgin birth can't possibly be true. And how do you explain the emptiness and the darkness and the sin in your life? Well, that can't be true either. Some people elect to go with the option that there's nothing really, really wrong. Have you ever had to make a decision, a momentous decision? Most of the time when we have to make a decision, our decision isn't made by dreams or angels. Most of the decisions that we make, we have to think about things. We have to think about our options. We have to think about the choices that are available to us. But as Christians, we have other options. We get to pray. We get to seek God. We can look in the Bible. We can seek godly counsel. We can evaluate our options. We can act in faith. But not everybody has that luxury. Maybe there was a time in your life where you didn't have that luxury. Where all you thought about were the consequences of the choice and where that would lead you. In verse 21 it says, and she will bring forth a son. And you'll call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. This is the Greek form of Jesus, and she will bring forth a son. The Hebrew is Yeshua or Hoshea. The name literally means it is the Lord who saves or the Lord saves. And the angel says his name will be the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sin. When he says he will save his people from their sin. Remember the genealogy has already been given in in chapter 1. He's talking about his people who have been descended from Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 tribes. The pronunciation of the name isn't nearly as important as the meaning of the name. Well, I prefer to call him Yeshua, whatever. Hosea, fine. Jesus in French, good for you. Jesus in Spanish. I love that, by the way. Most of my Spanish-speaking friends, what's your name? Jesus, what's your name? Maria, what's your name? Jose. See, we're named after the Holy Family. This way, when you get to heaven, all you have to do is just go, who are we? We're named after you. I'm just teasing Mary, just a little bit, just teasing a little. Mary Mary had like five sisters, all of them named Mary. No, I'm just kidding. That's not exactly true. That's not exactly true. From the start, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. The primary role of Jesus isn't to deliver them from social disability or political tyranny or social injustice. His primary function isn't to elevate them from poverty or even to impart prosperity. Who are his people and how will Jesus save them from their sin? The answer to those questions and many more in the narrative of the gospel and the epistles are going to comprise the rest of the New Testament. This is the story of Jesus' life. This is the story of his birth. This is the story of his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection from the dead. 
So all this is done, it says in verse 22, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The virgin shall be with child. Once again quotes the prophecy that was given in the book of Isaiah. Remember the Jew wants to know, does he have the right genealogy and does he fulfill the right prophecy? And what did the prophet mean when he said that a virgin will be with child and bear a son? Virgins don't have children. Unless it's a miracle. You see, the virgin birth was necessary to fulfill prophecy, Genesis 3.15, Isaiah 7.14. The virgin birth was necessary to reveal the invisible God, Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Have, can you imagine, can you imagine, has anyone ever said to you, have you ever said to anyone, when did you see God? Have you ever seen God? Have you ever touched God? Can you taste God? Can you go to lunch with God? Can you go bowling with God? And the answer is, God is a spirit. He's invisible. But according to the Bible, whoever God is and whatever he is and however he manifests himself, the moment that you look at Jesus, whatever you wanted to know about Jesus or whatever you wanted to know about God is fulfilled in Jesus. The virgin birth is necessary to fulfill prophecy, to reveal the invisible God, John 1, 18 and John 14, 9. The virgin birth is necessary to guarantee the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 8, where David is told through Samuel by the Lord that it's his offspring that are going to reign forever. The virgin birth is necessary to avoid Jeconiah's curse, Jeremiah 22, 24. The virgin birth is necessary to make a sacrifice for sins, Hebrews 2, 9 and 1 John 3, 5. Because God can't die. God is an eternal being, self-existent. So how, how in the world can there be a solution to the problem of sin unless God himself provides the solution? And the way that God does that is that he will come into the world and be born of a virgin. The virgin birth is necessary to escape the historical curse on Adam's seed in Romans 5.2. The virgin birth is necessary to reconcile human beings to God, 2 Corinthians 5.19. The virgin birth is necessary to provide the believer with a high priest, Hebrews 2.17, which says we have a high priest who isn't like the high priest that, that they used to have who was temporal, who, could, who would live and then who would die, who would offer a sacrifice every year. We needed a high priest who would live for Ever. And according to the Bible, Jesus rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father, according to the scripture, where he ever lives and intercedes for you. The virgin birth is necessary to destroy the devil and the works of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 and 1 John 3.8. The Bible says that Jesus came into the world to destroy the work of the devil. The virgin birth is necessary to heal the brokenhearted in Luke 4, 18. Jesus says, I've come into the world to set the captive free and to heal the brokenhearted. A virgin with a child bears a son. Jesus is human with a human mother and a human genealogy. In Galatians 4.4, 4, it says that God sent his son at exactly the right time, at exactly the right moment. Jesus grows up to be a man, John 4.9, with flesh and blood, Hebrews 2.14. Jesus grows up, Luke 2.40. Jesus asks questions. Jesus increases in wisdom. Jesus prays. He is tempted. He learns obedience. He hungers. He thirsts. He's weary. He sleeps. He loves. He has compassion. He is angered. He is grieved. He weeps. He experiences joy. He is troubled. He sweats blood. He suffers. He dies. He is buried. If he's not human, then what is he? But he's also God. 
Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus has all the rights and privileges and attributes of God. Jesus has the power over demons in Matthew 8, 6. He'll have power over diseases in Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. He has power over the shepherds, Luke 2, 15. He has power over the wise men in chapter 2, verse 2 and 11. He has power to heal the leper in Matthew 8, 2. He has power over his family, over his friends, over his disciples. He forgives sin in Mark 2, 5. He judges John 5, 22. He saves Matthew 18, 11. Stephen calls him God in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Paul calls him God in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul calls him God in Romans 9, 5. Read it for yourself. Of whom are the fathers, speaking of the Jewish fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God, Subject, Christ, verb, is, object, God, Christ is God. So when a person says to you, nowhere in the Bible does it say that Christ is God. Look at Romans chapter 9 verse 5. Christ is God. Peter calls him God, 1 Peter 3.22. Jude calls him God in Jude 1.25. John calls him God in 1.1. The angels call him God. God calls him God in Hebrews chapter 1, quoting Psalm 45, 6 and 7, where David calls him God. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the, is the, is the scepter of your kingdom. On my radio program, I remember a guy named Steve from Highlands Ranch calls. He says, I don't believe that Jesus is God. And I said to him, what I said to you. Stephen calls him God. Peter calls him God. Jude calls him God. John calls him God. The angels call him God. God calls him God. But Stephen from Highlands Ranch doesn't think he's God. Now, I get it. I get it. In order for you to hold on to the belief that Jesus isn't God, what you have to do is you have to make the scriptures say what the scriptures do not say. You see, the scriptures say that his birth is supernatural and that it's prophesied. But some of you still aren't sure. You remain unconvinced. In the ancient times, there was a group called the Ebionites who denied the reality of the divine nature of Jesus. John the Apostle answered their objections in his gospel and epistles when he writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Another group, the Gnostics, denied the reality of the human nature of Jesus. They believed that his physical flesh was an illusion that when Jesus walked on the beach, he left no footprints because he really wasn't there. John refutes that in the first John chapter 1 verse 1 when he says that which was at the beginning, that which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've handled with our own hands, which we have touched. It was John's way of saying, no, you're wrong. I was with him. I could put my arms around him. I could hold on to him. I could embrace him. The Arians affirmed the pre-existence of Jesus but denied that he was eternal like modern Jehovah's Witnesses. The Nestorians believed two Two people lived inside the same body of Jesus. The Nestorians believed he was sort of multiple personality disorder person. The Eutychians went to the opposite extreme and said that both na na uh, natures were somehow mixed together like chocolate and milk. That if you take chocolate and milk and you mix them together, you get chocolate milk. And if you mix divinity with humanity, you get this thing called Jesus. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. And the church fathers held to the fact that Jesus retains his deity and he retains his humanity. The early church defended the apostles testimony and the bible's declaration about his identity and his nature and his mission that jesus is one person with two natures that are completely god and completely human 
both distinct, each retaining its distinction. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, God didn't die because God can't die. But Jesus in his human nature physically, literally dies. And Jesus literally and physically rises from the dead. So there's the recognition of the divine will. Look what it says in verse 24 and 25. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. And he did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he, that's Joseph, called his name Jesus because that's what the angel said. That's what the angel told Mary. And that's what the angel told Joseph. The distress and the, dis- and the dream led to a decision. Look what it says. Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That is, he went through with the marriage. For those of you who are wondering, when Joseph and Mary make their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem, are they married? The answer is yes. They are. Jesus is not born out of wedlock. He went through with the marriage. He did not know her. That means he refrained from intimate relations. Note the word until. That is until the birth of the Savior. Joseph didn't live a loveless life. You know, in Roman Catholic tradition in in which I grew up with, I I said, well, you've got to admire St. Joseph. He was a saint. Why was he a saint? Because he was married to Mary. No, that's actually not what made him a saint. Joseph didn't live a loveless marriage with his wife. They had children. Jesus had several brothers and sisters. We know that from Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Two of the sons of Mary are going to grow up and become leaders in the church. One is named James and the other is Jude, who's the author of the book of Jude in your Bible. The angel was specific concerning the child's name. Jesus, and the reason, he's saving his people from their sins. His name would serve as a constant reminder of his mission. What's your name? I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you. Can you imagine meeting a person? Hey, what's your name? I'm going to save you. I've already told you my name. Gino, the cattle are all dead. Who names their child that? What kind of evil prank is that? To name your child after something so horrible. No, Gino doesn't really mean that. Gino is a nickname in the Italian language. It comes from either Iolius or Giuliano. You take the hard G and then you add the I-N-O. Gino. There's a story behind my name. When I was born, my father was from Sicily and he goes, my son, Gino, he's born right here in America. We're going to give him an American name. We'll call him Gino. (laughs) Nobody had the heart to tell him it really wasn't an American name. You see, sin was Jesus' errand. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It wasn't his only errand. Jesus said the son of man didn't come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, that whoever believes in him wouldn't remain in darkness. Paul, writing to Timothy, said, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief or first on the list. If you had the opportunity to meet Paul he would say what Jonathan Edwards later said as he looked into the abyss called his heart and he looked into the wickedness of his own heart and the sin in his own heart and he began to realize that there's only going to be one solution to the problem of sin 
This is why it says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, this was the purpose of the appearing of the Son of God, to undo the work of the devil. Satan came into the world, tempted our parents, and they died. And if there was ever going to be a solution to the problem, it was going to require a savior. So Joseph faced the predicament of his life. The birth of Jesus creates a predicament of each and every person because they have to consider the claims about Jesus. They want to ignore it. They want to ignore the message of the Bible that Jesus came into this world to save sinners from their sin. But the Bible, if you begin at the beginning and you follow it all the way through, records the creation of human beings and the fall of human beings and the redemption of human beings and the reconciliation of human beings. Joseph has to come to grips with what's right before him. Because, you see, Mary isn't simply pregnant and it isn't simply not his child. It's the one child who can offer the solution to the problem of sin. And so the birth of Jesus forces each person to evaluate those claims, accept those claims, or reject those claims. And I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, well, why can't, why can't Christmas be about something other than Jesus? For some of you, you understand the absurdity of that statement. Why can't Christmas be about something other than Jesus? The critic and the skeptic want to continue the slander that Matthew faced when writing his gospel, that Joseph faced when he was, had to deal with Mary. The critic and the skeptic suggest that Jesus wasn't born of a, of a virgin. He wasn't born of a virgin. The critic and the skeptic says, a child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the Oh, but that's not true. This child didn't come to the world in the usual way. The critic and the skeptic would have you believe that the promises that God gave in the Old Testament haven't been kept. The critic and the skeptic would have you believe that the character of God as it's represented in the Bible isn't true. And the critic and the skeptic would have you believe that Jesus is no savior. And that if a savior is coming, he or she have yet to make their appearance. And the critic and the skeptic would have you believe that Mary's pregnancy was just like any other unplanned pregnancy. Shocking. Shameful, painful, but not supernatural. Except in the sense that all babies are a kind of biological and existential miracle. But the Bible would have you believe that Christmas began in the heart of God and it becomes complete. When it reaches the heart of men, Mary was found with child by the Holy Spirit. And the Old Testament predicted that the Lord himself would give a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel. He would have to be human, because you're human. He would have to be divine. Because the problem of sin isn't simply your problem. It's my problem as well. It makes perfect sense to me that I would grow up in a world where I loved Christmas before I loved Jesus. But then when I discovered what the Bible says about Christmas and when I discovered what the Bible says about Jesus, I came to love 
Jesus. You see, there's a reason why I can continue to love Christmas. Because I can continue to love Jesus. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, El Gibor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Sar Shalom, the source of peace. Charles Dickens wrote, It's good to be children sometimes, and never better than at Christmas, when its mighty founder was a child himself. Jesus came into the world. And guess what? If you're wondering what you got for Christmas, well, reread the text. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for peace. We thank you, Lord, that we have everything. We have everything that we could ever want or ever need because we have Jesus. Lord, again, I pray for that person who lives in that constant battle. Is the Bible true? Is the story true? Is the solution to the problem of sin true? Lord, they may remain unpersuaded, unconvinced. But Lord, I pray that something more powerful than just my simple words would move upon their heart. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit would come to them knock at the door of their heart and ask them to come up with the question or the solution to the question. If everything's okay and if I'm just fine, then why is there this dark, distant, hurt, broken heart inside of me? Lord, I pray that they would come to realize that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That the pain could go away and that the sin can go away and that forgiveness can come if they'll just simply acknowledge and believe and embrace the gospel's message that a real Jesus has come into a real world to save them. To save me. Maybe like me, Lord, they loved Christmas way before they loved you. But I pray this morning that they would come to love you. And not just simply to love Christmas. In Jesus' name. Amen.